Because no race has the last word on culture and on civilization. They do not know what we are capable of. They do not know what we are thinking. They are thinking in terms of dreadnoughts, battleships, aeroplanes, submarines. You know what we are thinking about? That is our own private business. You are listening to The Brown CEO. You are listening to The Brown CEO. I'm your host, Selma Idris. Follow the conversation every week as I speak to some of the dopest minds from around the planet about what's broken and how we're going to fix it. This is the conversation between us every Tuesday. Yalla, let's go. Every Tuesday since March, we've been sharing our sessions, our conversations with some of the dopest folks around about what's broken in our diaspora and how we're going to fix it. I started this podcast because I think we got this. We just need to see each other so that we can help each other and move forward together. For my day job, I'm the CEO of the Brown Crayon Project. It's a children's health and lifestyle brand servicing families of the diaspora. I talk to parents a lot. We talk about concerns, not just for our children and our family's physical health, but about shared issues we face as families around identity, safety, government, education, money, happiness, and all the ingredients of setting up a safe and nurturing existence for our children to thrive in. And I wanted to share these conversations. But more than share, I wanted to start a dialogue around fixing everything that we were complaining about. Stories of innovation, strength, resilience, and resourcefulness from around the African diaspora have always informed my work and given me strength and assured me that truly, where there is a will, there is a way. So on the agenda for our board meeting today, we are going to review our learning from the first eight sessions and updates we've shared with you thus far. We've made sure to address general comments and questions we've received from you all in person and on our social media channels at The Brown CEO. All right, our first episode was with Tracy Solomon. She's the CEO of Kaiso Cocktails, um, and she had just returned from her first trip home to Ghana. Um, and we got a lot of great reviews about that podcast and also um, a lot of folks really thinking about going home and changing their thinking about um, going back to the continent. Yeah. 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 I heard a lot about that too. And then it even got me thinking because I w- was one of the people who after college did end up going on a trip to Europe. And I was trying to think why I did that and what factors went into that decision. It, a, a large part of it was I was just traveling with three other girls. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to go somewhere where we knew the language like I speak Spanish we were going to Spain like all that kind of stuff so it felt safer for some reason but I think that also speaks to like a larger lack of knowledge because I I'm sure their crime rates or whatever are the same in some parts of Europe that I went to as they are in some countries on the continent so like Ghana is one of the safest where Tracy went Ghana is one of the safest countries um not just on the continent, but uh, in yeah. the world. Yeah, I had a similar, I had a similar, I had similar feelings to Dougie because, uh, or should I call you Dougie on the podcast? Yeah, <laughs> okay. it's Dougie. We have to call her Dougie on the podcast. Dougie yeah, only. Yeah, we'll explain that. In yeah, a moment, I, I really enjoyed Tracy's story because, like, it really, uh, I mean, because like she described like her first trip going to Africa, and like I, 
you know, I had similar, I had similar experiences because I travel a lot with my mm-hmm. wife too. Um, we usually try to travel to like one new place every year, and uh, and uh, it took us a while to get to Africa, and it wasn't. I mean, it's sad to say this. I mean, it was on my radar. I knew I would always go, but it wasn't like first, second, third. Um, and What's I, it, what country did you go to? Um, we ended up going to South Africa, which is like, you know, the, the place where I feel like everybody from the West goes first, you know, because everyone feels like it's the safest place and the most, uh, I don't know, westernized, I, I guess you could say. But um, but yeah, like it was, I think a lot of, especially African-Americans, like, you know, you kind of fall into the same traps or tropes that you hear about Africa and kind of pass over it you know, maybe mm-hmm. you know as like the places that you would like be high on your list to travel to and it's it's pretty sad because I wish I had I wish I had gone sooner because it, um like Tracy it was a, it was a really a life-changing experience I yeah. mean like many African Americans you don't really get the chance to know exactly where what country you came from mm-hmm. um and one of the things that I think is really profound in the very first episode if I'm not mistaken you mentioned like it doesn't you said this like it doesn't matter you know if you don't know what what country you came from, like, (laughs) you know, it really doesn't matter. Yeah, and I think it was repeated again when Rodney was talking about a story um, when he had gone to the continent for the first time. I think he said he went to Nigeria Mm. or Ghana was one of his first trips. And he said he was speaking to um, an expat from the UK. And he said, I don't know where I'm from. And she said, it doesn't, Africa has 54 countries in it at the time. Mm. She said, pick one. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, so, you know, it, it, it really is that. Yeah, because yeah. we didn't make the, the Africans didn't make the countries that, that were currently formed, you know, now that, you know, mm-hmm. they didn't divide the pie up like that in yeah. terms of the continent. So, but yeah, I just, um, I, I, I was, uh, I was really enjoyed. I really enjoyed Tracy's episode just because like I could really relate to that feeling. I mean, it's just, I can't even describe it. Like I just, I think one of the things that you were just promoting a lot in that episode was just telling people to go. And I think you just need to, you just need to go, like just pick a country and go. And I guarantee you, if you're an African American, it will change your life. I guarantee it. Yeah. I think there's something special and soulful about uh, touching the continent again. And it means something different for everyone. Mm -hmm. And everyone's experience is different. And I understand that, you know, everybody's mixed blood and we're all, but honestly, that's, it's, the root and the soul and the center for it all. I know people who are not of color. Mm. They go to, to to the continent and love. I mean, they never left. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they came. They loved it so much. They never left. Mm. So um, no, I think it's important, and I think it was a nice way to open um, the podcast uh, because a lot of it for me is really about connecting the diaspora. And not necessarily telling everybody to, you know, move back home. Mm-hmm. Like the show starts with a Marcus Garvey speaking, who who we know is a Pan-Africanist. And he was very much into the the, the black man should return to Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I make the mistake of saying home. I know home means different things to different folks, which was interesting. Tracy said that too. Mm-hmm. She's like, when I, when I say home, I mean Trinidad. Mm-hmm. And, and rightfully so. But, um I do think that it's important for everybody to touch the soil and see what it means to them and develop their own relationship. Um, I liken it to um, uh, how adopted children will always be on the search for the birth mother, mm-hmm. um, regardless of what that relationship might be later. It might be positive or negative or it might not be one at all, but it's important to, to explore that. Um, episode two. 
Sudan Uprising with Sarah Hassan. Uh, she's a writer and activist. And that was... One, I'm Sudanese, of course, so it was very important for me to have covered that episode. Uh, it was also really important for me to um, have addressed and given attention to some of the protests that were starting to happen at that point. Because mm -hmm. when we recorded that episode, right towards the beginning of the protests, they'd been going on for like maybe a month or two at that point. Yeah. Um, but there was no really global coverage. Mm -hmm. And now... Things have changed so much. We had absolutely nothing to do with it. I'm just saying that over the time <laughs> since it happened, and we are personally responsible. No, over the time um, from the, our recording to now, um, it's been amazing. The, so Sudan Uprising, we were talking about um, the people in Sudan were protesting. Yeah. Uh, we were trying to call for diaspora support. Uh, because, you know, folks were tweeting and, you know, some on-the-ground journalists and career journalists were trying to get the word out, but there was no international recognition for what was happening. The people were protesting a 30-year dictatorship by Omar al-Bashir um, and his goons, and they finally, enough was enough, and they had sleep-ins, stand-ins, slept in the street, stood outside of the military compounds there and his home for a little bit, demanding he step down. And Sudan has become consequently an example of a beautiful and successful, peaceful uprising on the continent. Um, they're calling it Arab Spring V.2, which I think does it a disservice. It's yeah. its own movement. It's an African movement. And it has inspired similar peaceful protests around the continent since. Um, yeah, it's been, it's a long road, but it's been really beautiful to watch since that episode. Um, so yeah, they, they got him out of power. Omar Bashir was arrested. They appointed another military leader who the people did not like either. Um, he was, his hands were dirty as all of the military is mm -hmm. with, um, the, uh, Darfur, the genocides, the war with South Sudan, the corruption, the stealing money from the people. They found redonkulous amounts of cash hidden all over these people's houses. Yep. <laughs> you saw that, right? Yeah. Like stacks on stacks on yeah. stacks of U.S. dollars. The people of Sudan are now debating the transitional government. So there's still a lot of work to be done, a lot of work on the ground. So we need to continue to support the people of Sudan. The, the, the 30 years rule of Bashir has not just taken an economic toll on the people. So there's going to be a lot of rebuilding. But you know what? I'd rather be building for the next 30 years than, you know, deconstructing. So... Correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like there was very little bloodshed at least in this past couple months mm -hmm. and how this and how this happened and and the fact that they had tried to put in install military leaders and the people still said no and like to me like that was kind of mind-blowing like the fact that honestly the only thing i've chalked it up to was culture because mm -hmm. it you seems know? like the people like, knew exactly like, what they wanted yeah like, that's, that's, but that's actually a really great point and i don't know like yeah, because to me it's kind of fascinating because like because you see uprisings and like you can see people getting mad anywhere at any point in time in history, but the, the like where are the nukes? Yeah, why didn't they just blow them out of the water? Yeah, like what? Why wasn't there like mass? Yeah, genocide like we've seen in yeah. every other freaking country, yeah, like, including this one. Yeah, 
Because that's, I mean, <laughs> I mean, call call me call me cynical or whatever or yeah. pessimistic, but that's kind of what I was expecting to happen. And mm-hmm. that's just, what we and, were all <laughs> afraid, clutching, holding on. I mean, because all of us. So yeah, we were all terrified that worse was going to happen. And there are a lot of martyrs. There has been a lot of bloodshed. So yeah, compared to even what like the U.S. would do if there was just like a holdup at Walmart where they would probably like <laughs> blow out 35 people. Yeah, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah like, I don't know. It's some, I want to talk about it. I think that's actually a great um, future episode that we should do just about talking about the successful peaceful protest and how that works. Like, why did this work? And how do we do it again and again and again? I don't know if it was the resilience of the people. I don't know if it was just like, when the people come together in that kind of mass. Because mm-hmm. yeah. I'm wondering if that's a, a unique one-off thing that's going to happen because just based on the Sudanese people or if like that's something that could yeah. possibly be replicated because, I mean, I mean, I keep calling myself pessimistic because I am, yeah. but I'm just like, you know, I, I can't remember a time in my adult life where I've seen anything quite like that and granted like you know this is not the end of the story or anything like that for sure i mean this is but um you know but it's a great one to watch and it's a great example i think for the whole diaspora and we're better than a place for sudan named the land of the blacks then we also talked to um another entrepreneur marvin francois and we talked to him about black money and the power of black money and uh fixing that situation understanding how much buying power we actually have mm-hmm. uh, we talked about black business we talked about you know the power of the black dollar and unifying our black dollar to actually you know push corporations to make product for us make messaging for us um and controlling that that was an, uh, that was a great conversation and that was with update yeah that interesting dynamic of uh his uh lunch break with his uh fellow black mm-hmm. <laughs> Co-workers is also really cool. It was really interesting to see. Yeah, how, I think that's came probably that. one of my favorite outcomes yeah. that we've talked about on the podcast. Just because it really just shows he saw a problem, he was made a plan, executed, mm-hmm. and then he came out with a result that ended up changing someone's life. And this was all just because people took the time to talk to each other and yep. communicate. And just to recap, yeah, um, what happened in that episode was Marvin was telling us a story. Uh, at work at the uh, investment bank that he works at, um, there was a fellow sister who was passed up uh, for an opportunity, and they had been talking about um, the, uh, the the brothers and sisters there meeting for lunch collectively um, at the same time in the cafeteria there at work, and you know we we were really excited about getting the update. To this, to this meeting for this meeting, and then you know he was telling us that yeah, not everybody showed up. It was tough to get everybody's schedule together, so we thought there was going to be a big letdown at the end of it. And then we find out that um, the sister who was passed up, uh, the folks that did show up, uh, ended up uh, lobbying for her. She found the mentorship that she needed, and 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 the the folks in her corner. And she ended up not only getting, what she get, like a bonus? She got a the raise, job she the jam, was originally the job. passed up for, for a bonus. Yeah, and like a pay bump or something. Yeah. Like it was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It was like Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, it was fantastic. So amazing. Um, and well deserved. Yeah. yeah. It's funny how all, we all expected a, we were all kind of pessimistic about it at first. We were all expecting a uh, either a very, 
tame outcome or an outcome that was probably just like nothing was really going to come of it. Probably like a meeting to talk about it and where, you know, maybe they, whoever the bosses were, would feel good about whatever they're saying, but maybe nothing would actually come of it. That's what I thought was going to happen. Yeah. And uh, it was just, uh, it was really amazing to see. I thought he outcome. was just going to tell us the story. <laughs> yeah. I thought he was going to be like, yeah, and yeah. sister didn't get the job. Yeah. And yeah. she was all upset. So we talked about that during lunch for a while. And, you know, we'll meet up in a couple of weeks. But it was mm. like, well, you guys did something about it. And, um, you know, again, yeah. in like the, the, the... It's sad how shocked we are, though. Yeah. Oh, that That's, something actually yeah. happened? Yeah. We're so set up to think only negative things are going to happen in situations yeah. where it's us against them. And I think sometimes it might discourage people from even trying to yeah. do something because you just don't think it's going to work. If you are analyzing the situation and based on past things that have happened to you, you can really just see that based on what's happened... It, something good probably won't even come out of this but in this case they did it anyway and it ended up working out yeah makes me think of that phrase like you'll miss like a hundred percent of the shots you don't take so mm -hmm. so yeah. i just thought it was i thought it was really just you know the fact that they just did something you know and that something you know that little bit of just push yeah got such a such an amazing result for somebody yeah. it was really incredible it's great to see a sister win at the end of that mm -hmm. that was a great episode yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's good stuff. And after Black Money, we talked to um, Rodney, Rodney White, and he is the creator of Black on Black, the t-shirt line mm -hmm. and clothing line. And he also did, um, he's a dope art director um, and did a lot of, of award-winning work. And then he also had a lot of his like paintings and stuff in Target. So he was cool. Really like, interesting. Really focused on the message. Yeah. Um, and like that's his career. Mm -hmm. He's in advertising. It's mm -hmm. all about the message. So that was a really interesting conversation. Talk about disenfranchisement. Like that's where, especially as media has grown and we spend so much more time on our phones and watching TV and all that kind of stuff, and consumerism just generally. Like the message is we're consuming messaging created by people who don't have our best interest in mind. Yeah. Why are these? blind spots is what he called them, which I think mm. were great. How come so many blind spots exist and why is there such a lack of representation? And it is interesting. It's just there's less and less of us yeah. in, in those roles. Why? I don't know. Mm. Um, you know, we talked, we touched on it a little bit on the episode of, you know, yeah. folks not moving up the ladder like they like. Mm. So and even if we're, in, even moves. if a handful of us are there, there's that pressure that anybody that's not of color doesn't have to deal with you're they're navigating a political landscape of like does my job become in jeopardy if i speak up and say something about this or am i frowned upon you know amongst yeah. amongst everybody else that's around me and it's just uh yeah the way i think what i really took away from this episode was just how he kind of navigated that landscape himself and the things that he kind of took away from that as well and you know and now that he's doing his own thing I think my my big takeaway from Rodney was um, impact. Intention does not absolve. Impact. Oh yeah, the secret. <laughs> yeah, the white people. Did we get any any feedback on that? Did anybody comment on that? We just got smiles and likes. We got some trolls. Oh yeah, but that means it's a good message. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's probably a good thing. Like I think, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. I do. I think yeah, I think it's pretty on point. I thought it was. I thought it was one of the most on point things anybody said. I don't think it only applies to white folks. But yeah, I think that's a real. It's funny that it's it's extra true for this specific instance that he's talking about, or for the specific thing that he's talking about. Um, 
but it really applies to everything. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it was. I literally have not. Stu- there probably isn't a week that has gone by since he's since he dropped that gem that I haven't thought about it. The truest words spoken. Mm. Yeah, I think on the show this far. It also it's a good principle, but also it's a good response. Like that helps me explain so much about how I feel when something happens to me or when some something somebody does something to me like. If I was equipped with that language the last time one of my friends said something racist and didn't mean to, mm-hmm. the whole situation would have gone so much better and so much clearer because it's it's sharp, it's clear, and it's yeah. powerful. So, class with Dr. John Johnson. Oh, man. Um, that was a two-part episode. Yeah. One of the biggest questions I got about that episode was, I mean, people loved it. Yeah, I could talk to that man all day. Yeah. They said, all how day. come it was two parts? And I was like, y'all don't understand how much actual audio we had after that episode and how hard it was to even I, edit it. When we were coming close to three hours, actually, we might have gotten past three hours. Yeah. It was, it was since I could have talked to him forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even really feel like I was talking to him. It was kind of just like, talk to me. Mm-hmm. Talk to me. I wanted to enroll, mm-hmm. go back to school. But it was just such a fascinating episode because he focused on and taught and teaches Western civilization, but it just shows how important it is that we're included in telling the story mm-hmm. because the way he tells the story is so much more whole. Mm-hmm. The fact that we even existed and I didn't think about it. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, of course you know it. But to have a professor just sit here and just matter of factly be like, yeah, Rome, imagine a city in Rome. Uh-huh, it's cosmopolitan, look kind of like New York City. Mm-hmm. That blew my mind. Yeah, because, I mean, I learned a lot. And I, I think I like the thing that I like, really liked about him is that he really understands and really like imparts this on the student on the students that he teaches is just the history that you're learning is only as i guess good or accurate as the person who's the perspective that it's being told from Mm -hmm. and the more perspectives that you can get about a certain time in history i think is the fuller picture that you'll get and the thing that i like that he does with his students is that he challenges them to think about you know he'll he'll tell them the facts that he knows about you know, whatever he's teaching, but he also tries to come at it from multiple different perspectives so that you really get that full picture. Because obviously anybody who's opened up an American textbook, Mm. you know, an American history textbook, there's a lot of perspectives that are not taught, not just African-American or, um, you know, you're missing, you know, Asian, you're missing Latino, you're missing so many perspectives there, Mm. then you really only get most, most students, you know, only get this one perspective of, you know, U.S. history and world history for that matter, too. Yeah. So, yeah, I've, world history is definitely from the one, what we've learned mm-hmm. is very heavily from a Western lens. Mm-hmm. And defeat is, is, is defined by whether the West lost or won. Mm-hmm. Victory is defined by whether the, lost, the West lost or won, regardless of what was right or what was wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think that that in itself paint, paints a lens on like who the good guy is, who the bad guy is, who the winner is, who the loser is. And that's not, you know, I mean, that's your perspective and that's how you function through anything else that you've been taught. Yeah. Um, yeah. I thought it was so interesting about, he said something like history is continuously being redefined. Mm-hmm. And I always thought the job of a historian was to kind of 
stay almost the current present future like that kind of space whereas like new things happen you're recording stuff you're learning new perspectives and obviously teaching what happened in the past but the fact that historians and history professors go back and their research is redefining and trying to find out new stories about what has already happened that is something i never thought about but it's really special yeah i think he said it was fluid was i think the word that he used the history is fluid and you know and i i hadn't really thought of it in in that way before but he's a hundred percent right you know that really history is fluid the more that you keep finding out the more that you keep getting more perspectives on it the more that it changes how you actually you know interpret it and understand it um i also really liked i i really enjoyed uh getting to learn more about newark because yeah i mean like in the back of my mind like i've always known that newark is this very it's kind of funny because like yeah it's a it's a big city but nobody ever talks about it in terms of nobody thinks of it in terms of a city in terms of like you know philadelphia boston new york you know any of these other major cities but i mean um like like you said i mean like you know you know, it has this massive historical significance with the Underground Railroad. Um, you know, there's, you know, I remember him, I think one of the really cool things I really uh, enjoyed was how he kind of broke down um, the history of, like, music. Mm-hmm. There, I think he was talking about, like, house and electronic music, um, how it had Or a even home, jazz, how you had to yeah. cut your teeth in newer. Yeah, yeah, yeah how all, the, you know, all those jazz musicians had to, you know... You know, in order to get gigs in in New York, you know, you had to go through Newark first because, you know, that was like, you know, that would be like your stomping ground because, like, if you could make it there, then all of a sudden you would be able to get gigs in New York, so. Yeah. I like that when he said that all roads go through Newark. Yeah. 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 So it's, I think he had quoted that, so I'm not going to, but it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's funny. Years ago, I had a, a friend from New Jersey and um, he had mentioned that. He was like, everybody always like shits on New Jersey. Mm-hmm. You don't realize it's just like we're in a perfect position. You know, we're, you know, a, basically a suburb of Philly, mm-hmm. um, like southern New- Jersey. Yeah, yeah, suburb of New York, too. Suburb of New York. York. We are close to a uh, uh, stone's throw from D.C. And it's doable to Boston. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's one of those things that's just like this is really like the East Coast Highway. Yeah. Um, so it was awesome to talk to John and get like more of um, like to just get more examples to get more of a vivid picture of like the heyday of Newark and what was happening out there and like yeah it's a stone's throw from the city you see it mm-hmm. so it totally makes sense it's like and all we hear about now is like either the crime rate mm-hmm. or it's the highest carjacking rate and all yeah. that kind of stuff and it's just it was good to to hear about the goodness and the greatness um, you know oddly enough um, this is kind of a little bit separate, but like, oddly enough, when I, because you, you guys, you guys went to Cuba before, right? Mm-hmm. You guys have been to Cuba. I think we talked about that before. Oddly enough, when I was in Havana, mm-hmm. it, in a weird way, it kind of reminded me of walking through Newark. I know this is going to sound weird. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I know this is going to sound, this is going to sound really weird, right? <laughs> They're like, so maybe I should just go to Newark instead I, of I Cuba. Now, I, now, I know that sounds weird, but I'll explain. Um, <laughs> like, I remember because when I was in when I was in Havana, um, I had um, I was with I was staying with a uh, couple, and they were kind of like telling me like the history of of Havana and stuff like that, and how it was like the third largest, you know, it was like the third largest city like in the in like the Western world or something, or like uh, in North America, 
you know, in its heyday. And mm-hmm. like when you walk through it, you could see like what it once was. And I remember like the first mm-hmm. time I really got a chance to like walk through Newark and like you kind of see, you know, even though it, you know, it wasn't walking around in nicer parts, but you could see there are areas where you walk around Newark, you can kind of see what like a dilapidated it, it, grandeur. It, yeah, you can yeah. see that in an odd way. Like I, like I said, I know it sounds weird, but like when no, I, I feel you. But like you can, if you really take a little bit of time to, and granted, like I don't have huge connections to Newark. I have some family there, um, and it's not like I've spent an extensive amount of time there. But at the same time, when I have gotten a chance to walk around, it's like I sometimes, like when I'm in a place, I like to think about like what that place, either what the history of that place or how it came to look like, how it was. And like, you can see what it used to look like. Yeah. And I, and you know, so uh, just something a little random side take. No, I love it. I love it. It's hilarious. She's like, it reminds me of Newark. (laughs) (laughs) So it should rebrand like Newark, the Cuba of America. Yeah. The The Cuba of the East Coast. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. After our John episode, we went into episode seven and uh, talked about young scholars with Wala Al Sheikh, who is the uh, CEO and founder, co-founder of Birthright Africa, which is an organization um, that has the dopest mission ever. I'm gonna read it. You want to read the mission? Yeah. yeah, I think that'd be a lot clearer. Yeah. Better. Go ahead, Dougie. <laughs> you go, girl. Okay, so Birthright Africa is creating the next generation of global leaders and entrepreneurs that are proud of their African heritage, confident in their innovative aspirations, and connected to the African continent. So Birthright Africa takes young folks from here for now, from the States for now, and they take them home and back to the continent. And not just on a historical journey of you know researching themselves they do they do do that but most importantly they talk to them about entrepreneurship and innovation and what they want to do with their futures and connect them back to entrepreneurship innovation mentors businesses run by people of color both on the continent and throughout the diaspora being right now in the u.s it's a dope it's a dope organization. It is. I ended up, I volunteered with Birthright Africa this summer, oh. and I got to hang out with this year's cohort. Um, the age range was about 15 to 20, sorry, that's not true, 18 to 26. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were all students at City University of New York, um, all with different backgrounds. Some were Latinx, some were African-American, some knew where their roots were from and on the continent. And it was just amazing to see how much the programming impacted their lives. They, I started off when, when they all first kind of met each other and they were all kind of awkward and stuff, but they really grew to be a family. They're still very close. They got to meet innovators in New York and D.C. They got to learn about history, black history that, as we were talking with Dr. John Johnson, that sometimes is not shown or demonstrated or people don't have the opportunity to learn so it was a historic culture experience it was a team building experience it was a ego building experience yeah the brown crown project is an innovation partner at birthright africa so i have the pleasure of speaking with the scholars as well meeting with them um and doing some panels and to see who they are from when they start to when they finish is really really dope um and i just it 
that to me that the most important part of that podcast is that we all all of us know about it tell each other about it let people know that this organization exists Volash said she they're going an umbrella organization so they're going to try to help everyone who's trying to do this so yeah yeah i i i i can't express enough how i think that the mission of birthright africa is probably the most necessary thing not even just probably not just for african americans but probably for anybody any any black person living in the western world <laughs> honestly mm-hmm. um i mean it's the most necessary thing that i think that we need as any any black people living in the western world i i i can't stress enough like how much I, I can't stress enough how much going to Africa changed me. Yeah. Just like, you know, I didn't have any expectations um, or I really didn't know what my expectations were going to be. I didn't know what it was going to be like. You know, I wouldn't say I was nervous or anything like that, but I really didn't. Like, let's just say you, I wasn't ready for the for the range of emotions and feelings that I felt when I went. And I couldn't help but thinking like on the flight back, I'm like every every african-american especially needs to experience this in Mm -hmm. some way shape or form like it's so necessary and and i talked about this on the pod too you know um growing up in a very you know growing up in a very jewish neighborhood you know they've had the they've had birthright you know what's it called birthright israel birthright israel um for many many years I i don't know when it started but um it was like 99 or something. Yeah. I remember looking it up. Yeah. And um, I can see the the pride in getting to know who, I mean, it's like, yeah, you're getting to know who you are, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and granted, it's like, you know, it's, it's not about like trying to, like you said um, earlier, it's not about like necessarily you need to go and, and live in Africa and be there the whole time. But, um, but I just... It, it will change you. Yeah. It, it will change you, and and it's just it's an it's a necessary thing. And the other thing that I think feel even more strongly about after that episode when I talked about it is that if reparations are going to take any form, Ooh, yeah, that is the number one thing. If we get nothing else, that should be the number everyone one. Everyone should th- get a trip. Everyone should yeah. get a trip back to Africa. Yeah, everybody should. It's so necessary. I think what's really important about people going back home, in addition to just it feeling good, it's a bigger conversation. I think it's important to have that knowledge transfer and exchange. We want the talent from outside of the diaspora informing the talent inside. You know, yeah. We have tremendous pools of talent out there. Um, everybody else is in there in building Africa, and unfortunately they have been for a long time. And my thing is this. If you're going to invest money, if you're going to buy that real estate, if you're going to buy that next house, if you're going to flip that business... You know, we mm. should be owning Africa. We should be running Africa. And unfortunately, we are looking to and f- the West and to the East, into Asia, for investment, for capital. And I do think that we should just need, we need to pull together better. Yeah, because we just, in terms of like the global economy, like the only inclusion I feel like Africa ever gets in the global economy is what resources can be taken from it, mm-hmm. never as a never as a, as an included partner. So we have a, a Tia? No. Coach. Coach. All right. Oh yeah, wait. <laughs> yes. Episode seven, we talked to Coach Wayne Blair. 
Um, he's a formal, former um, professional football player. Uh, he's also a football coach. He's He was a D lineman at Tulane University and was part of the undefeated bowl team there. And he is now an educator. And I think if my kids were playing a sport, <laughs> I would want Wayne to be their coach because he's one of those guys that approaches it as a whole function. And I liked how we talked about, like, you know, with, with Dr. Johnson, we talked about education from, like, a very high level. He's in, in high academia. By the time you get into the topics he's talking about, you're in there already. Mm-hmm. You're in it to win it. Um, they're not teaching that stuff in the fifth grade. So, and then when we talked to Wala about Birthright Africa and the Young Scholars and the idea of that and talking about, you know, giving these kids the ego boost, the confidence, the advantage that they need to be able to walk into a boardroom and know that they're of something, from something, and giving them the network that they need globally and internationally to be able to succeed and do what they need to do, right? Mm -hmm. And give them the options and choices to jump ship if they have to. Yeah. Wayne brought it all down to reality for me. I really enjoyed that conversation. And what I think that we looked at there um, after having several conversations about messaging and then education is how broken education really is and how much we need more of us teaching us. I think, especially with black athletes, that, and I think that Wayne really gets, really understands this. And the thing, I think the reason why his work is so important is that he's, he's really taking like this holistic approach to players, whether they're going to be on the professional level, professional level or not, you know, um, to really understand their value and to really understand, you know, going beyond a, if you are going to be on the professional level, you know, to really understand your value and that you are like a, you are like a commodity mm-hmm. really, and to really know your worth. And, you know, me and him kind of got into that little bit of discussion about, you know, how um, it's still is like, you know, obviously, especially college, college, like NFL and, and sorry, college football and college basketball players are not paid mm-hmm. and they still, and a lot of them, a lot of kids growing up want to be like, you know, these professional athletes, um, but don't realize that there really are these, when, you know, being a professional athlete is not just about playing the game. You really are your own your own entrepreneur yeah you you're were, an employee you're, at that point yeah, too. So, you're, an, yeah. yeah you're an employee you're not, even an you're, not, you're not allowed to do what you want to do yeah, with the company i mean, I, mean yeah. not, I mean as a as a yeah. college athlete no but like but if you make it yeah. if you make it on that level like you are you know it's a called you are a brand at that point you are a business mm-hmm. and being able to really understand that um is really is really really key yeah. but um also just the importance of having somebody like Wayne in these young men's lives, you know. Somebody who's done it, been through it, understands it, knows what the pitfalls are. And like you said, like, understanding their value, but also what can I get out of this? It's important to understand at each step of the way, what can I get? Mm. Um, And what am I getting? And what am I willing to give up for it? Mm. And are you willing to give that up for it? I think the other important conversation with Wayne is to train these kids when they come out, not to just think that they they have to play. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're good at math, focus on that too. You could be a statistician. And I think even on a, I think even on a deeper level too, it's like one of the things, one of the things I kind of hear, or I think people wonder is just like, why are these kids always so drawn to, especially, especially young black boys? Why are they so drawn to, you know, the sports, you know, the, you know, sports and entertainment and this sort of thing? And it's just like, I think it can be argued that like, you know, 
sports is like maybe even more so than the real world is like closer to being a meritocracy as a lot of people like mm. to try to call it if you're talented enough or you're good enough you will you will be given opportunities um and i think Hmm. I think that's one of the wow yeah 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 and no matter how big or how black you are oh, yeah it, it's the only like the place number, that it doesn't matter how big yeah. or bla- how black you are yeah. yeah you just gotta get out there and do it yeah. if you crush skulls you crush skulls. skulls yeah they'll give you I mean you mean if you think about it they'll give you opportunities regardless of you know but even but it, I think it's even more but I think that even leads to it being more important for people like Wayne to be in these mm-hmm. in these in these people's lives because like they'll They'll give these they'll give these guys opportunities if you're talented enough, if you have, you know, God given talents. But if you don't have the if you don't have, you know, a really developed background or you're like, with Wayne taking that holistic approach and really teaching them, you know, to a like, you know, a know themselves, mm-hmm. really know themselves and then having an education to be able to go and go along with that, you can instead of you. Um, you know, you always hear about the athletes, you know, who make a lot of money and then they lose all their money, you know, and stuff like that and being taken advantage of. But if you have more people like Wayne in your life, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you know, everybody needs a Wayne. Everybody, in everybody. Needs, I mean, honestly, like everybody yeah. needs a Wayne. In well, their everybody life. needs a coach. Yeah. All right. So episode eight, uh, we talked to Atia Taylor. Uh, the editor in chief of and uh, founder of Womanly Magazine, which I really dug. I went to a panel and I Atia was on it, and I poached a couple of people off of that panel that I found really interesting. But I really dug what Atia was doing because when the magazine was beautiful, you likened it to paper, and I, that's a huge compliment. I don't think she realized what a great compliment it was. It was incredible yeah. to me. It was she. So good. She was. Um, I mean, everybody. Everybody that's been on is obviously impressive in their own right, but there was something about her in particular that I just found really impressive because mm-hmm. in a day and age where I feel like journalism is dying, especially and print magazines are definitely dying, you know, it's a bold thing. And I said this on the episode too, it's a bold thing to be like, I want to create a print magazine for the product that she has produced is nothing. Sh- I mean, it's incredible. It's so good. It's incredible. Not from the look to the content. Like, the content is amazing. If I if I created something like that, I'll, I'll be the first person to tell you right now. I'd be a little snobby about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be glued on my chest. Like, like, I made the best magazine <laughs> yeah. in the world. No, it, it's it's a great piece of work. What yeah. I what I found so impressive is that like some of the like the subject matter, the articles are very very specific topics that there's a clear vision i mean obviously there's a there's a clear vision of topics that people who are from disenf- who are disenfranchised to some extent i would say disenfranchised from information like, mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying like she had an article about uh some sort of heart disease or something like that yeah the cardiovascular you, health yeah, fund yeah, yeah 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 like that article was you know i mean i can't recall a i can't recall ever reading an article that specifically talks about like that disease in the in the way that it was talking about it and specifically relating it to people of color yeah it hits all the notes like it's it's backed up by credible facts it looks visually appealing and then on top of that it's um very gives information to people who wouldn't normally get it when you read the articles too the, the, the i kind of judge articles by like 
A, they give good information, but I always believe the good information is disseminated by telling a story. Mm, and mm-hmm. each one of those articles has, there's a narrative that's being built yeah. in each of those, in each of those articles. And the way that it's done is really beautiful. Yeah. It's very artfully done. Like you can tell that she's an artist and a musician and, you know, like she, she crafts a story because it's not just like, here's information or blah, 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 blah. Look yeah. at all the cool stuff I can make. And the amount it's of volunteers, gorgeous. the amount yeah. of volunteers, that, that's the other thing too that yeah. blew my mind. The fact it's that amazing. she can manage a team of 30 that don't get paid and yeah. then they still listen to her and she's putting together this awesome work and mm. four times a year. And what, I'm just very impressed by the whole situation. God bless her. Mm. I wish her nothing but the best. I really just took a liking to her, generally speaking. Yeah. I think we're going to hear a lot from her in the future. Mm. <laughs> just, I, the importance of what she's doing at a time where, you know, you're hearing more and more about the um, the neglect of the woman of color in mm. in healthcare. Um, it's something I started my brand because children weren't children of color were being neglected and maternal health was being neglected and so on, and to have somebody like Atia putting together something that arms us with the knowledge that we need to take care of ourselves because you can't ask anyone else to fix it for you. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to fix it, and that's why we have to have these conversations. There's just a couple of questions that I want to ask you guys before we wrap. Okay. So we have those. Okay, a couple of questions I get all the time is, what is Dougie? Who is Dougie? <laughs> Dougie is your best friend and your worst nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> and I got, is Dougie a man? Oh. Huh? Oh, actually. Yeah. Because we wanted to, everybody wants to know who and what Dougie is. Um, and I often just answer that Dougie is an animated creature from La La Land, <laughs> but she's not. We actually brought in today the person who named Dougie, and he's going to tell you that story now. Okay, so... I have a grandma that name is uh, that I used to call her Dougie, and then I just got mixed it up with my cousin, so I just started calling her Dougie. And Dougie's real name is okay. So that's <laughs> not what happened. So what happened was, <laughs> and the other question I get is, who is the man's voice? I'm gonna let Josh answer that question because I think he is the voice that you all were referring to. Okay, uh, my name is Josh Wilcox. I am the manager and lead engineer at Brooklyn Podcasting Studio. I um I've been producing this show since the beginning. It's been incredible mm-hmm. and awesome. I'm so glad that Selma not only you know chose our studio, but you know asked me to be a part of this. Um, the thing that has most impressed me about the podcast, though, especially the black podcasters that come through here, which is about 80, I would say it's close to 85% of our, That's so great. of the, of the quote unquote roster that comes through here are black podcasters. And the, you know, for a people that I feel we always talk about how we don't uplift each other enough, how we don't, uh, you know, come together enough, you know, however you want to phrase that. The thing that I've literally found amazing is the fact that everyone that comes through here is the exact antithesis of that. Like they, they're all looking to come together to promote black growth. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the most, so far for me personally, running this studio and running this space, that is the most um, rewarding thing that I've gotten from it so far. That's dope. My favorite takeaways from our, one of our episodes is woke equals work. Mm. You know, so it's a state, it's not a state of being, 
it's a state of action. Mm -hmm. So it means there must be a bunch of us working towards the right thing. So yeah. And for me, it's just a pleasure to promote, just to be a part of helping put the best foot forward for all these black voices that come through, and yours especially included. So Aw, thank you. Uh, that's just the beginning of, of, of where we're going with all of this, um, these wonderful conversations with these dope minds about what's broken and how to fix it, um, and just keeping it real. All right, y'all, that's our show. All the links and handles you need are available in the show notes and on thebrownceo.com. Thank you to us. <laughs> <laughs> the wonderful dope guests, us, Josh, Dougie, and Selma. And thank you to our family here at the Brooklyn Podcasting Studio. Uh, we want to hear from you. Keep the conversation going and tell us what you think. Talk to us on Twitter at The Brown CEO. Subscribe and review our podcast on iTunes or go to thebrownceo.com.